Welcome back to the Expository Word Podcast, where we are listening to classic messages from Kimber Kaufman. We are currently in a series from the book of 2 Samuel. We trust you will enjoy today's message as an encouragement to your faith. Let's listen now to Kimber. Let us remember in 2 Samuel 17 where we are. This entire segment of Scripture is guided by the principle, and this is so important, the, the reason Romans 15.4 says that understanding the Old Testament will give you perseverance, my friends, is because it is a tremendous example of the way God deals with His people. For instance, here you see in these, all these chapters which are controlled, David has sinned, and now all of these chapters are controlled by this idea that God is disciplining David. And so here is how sovereign and how mighty our God is. He can bring judgment and discipline into our life at the for the very purpose of working with us and for us. In other words, God can work for us and against us at the same time. God can be disciplining you and yet bringing blessing into your life at the same time. He can bring um, uh, Shemais into your path to curse you. He can bring people into your life, Absaloms and Ahithophels, to betray you. And he can do all of that to discipline you, yet the whole time while they're betraying you, he can thwart their schemes so that they can't get complete victory over you. That is why it's thoughts like this that I believe the Apostle Paul comes to realize in the, in the 11th chapter of the book of Romans when he is just astonished at the wisdom of God. And he stops back and he goes, who can understand his wisdom? His ways are past finding out. How great is our God? How mighty is our God? I again have been so encouraged in this area of considering the greatness of God in creation as an illustration to trust him in our trials. We talked again by way of reminder that there is... Uh, a, 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 an object like the kidney or, or organ like the kidney that they can study for years and years in medical schools and they still can't begin to understand it. We can hardly know anything about the, the expanse of the universe. It's so wonderful. They're finding out more things about the ocean and creatures and things that God has made. And yet we would stop back and we would say, wait a minute, because we don't understand it or because we don't feel right about a certain situation or because we're troubled in the way our events have gone, we really... Uh, can't trust God. Listen, how can you say you can't trust an almighty God who can just, in one little sliver area of science, baffle all of the greatest minds put together? Who are we to question him? And in this passage, one of the reasons I think that Romans 15.4, if you've noticed week after week, one of the things that has been a constant statement as we've applied 2 Samuel 17 is this idea of endurance, this idea of perseverance, of keeping on and not quitting. And one of the reasons is that we would read the Old Testament stories, we'll understand God and His ways. And it will give us encouragement, and it should give us hope. Now, I, I find that um, very, very encouraging. And, and, and you know, I, I will tell you, I've already mentioned in the past what I learned on that sabbatical, how my eyes were open, how the Scriptures really are not being taught. And how there's a famine in the land, and there's, a, and there's also a heresy in the land of a turning away from teaching the Bible as it's supposed to be taught by the local church. But something that is important for us to remember is that this scripture is there to give us hope and to understand the ways of God. And so let us run through the story. And last, we won't review as we did last week, although that was a fun review last week, wasn't it? That was so much fun. But remember that here, here's some things that have happened. Uh, Amar, Amar, Amnon rapes Tamar, and then Absalom kills Amnon, and then Absalom runs up to Geshur, which you don't even see on this map, but it's way up there. He's there for a few years. Joab works the deal for Ab Absalom to come back. Absalom comes back to Jerusalem, which is the headquarters 
of Israel and the capital city of Israel. And while he is there, uh, for four years, while David doesn't seem to be doing much of anything, Absalom is out politicking. And he's out saying, oh, I feel your pain. If only you would just uh, let me be your leader, how I would help you. And after four years, popular movement has swelled around Israel. Now, David is considered a bad guy because of how murderous he was when he attacked the Philistines and other places. He also, his, his Bathsheba affair and the, and the cover-up with Uriah is starting to leak out. And so people know that David's on the down and out. And so one day, Absalom tricks 200 high cabinet members to follow him to Hebron. They blow the trumpets and announce all around Israel in just a matter of minutes, really, that Absalom is king. And as a result of that, David flees, and we've studied these chapters, David is fleeing. Now, all of this is because God is disciplining David. And we've got to remember, if we're going to properly handle this text, we've got to remember that the Scripture is about the disciplining hand of God because of sin. Every heartache, every sorrow, every tear, and every one of these chapters are filled with tears, is there because of David's sin. It does not pay to sin. But And, and by the way, Sin will be paid for by Jesus Christ or else people will suffer in hell for it. And something that is so very important to remember is for Christians, sin has been paid for by Christ. David was a believer in Jesus Christ and in future faith he was saved by faith just as we are saved by looking back. But I want you to know, friends, that David was being disciplined because when God's people lives in sin, the Bible says in 1 Peter, judgment must begin at the house of God. And God deals with his people. He doesn't want some brats running around. And so God comes along and says, I am going to deal severely with you, David. And so all of this heartache and all of this trouble comes. But stop and think of the wisdom of Almighty God. Without this, we wouldn't have Psalm 3, Psalm 4, Psalm 41, Psalm 55. We wouldn't have those psalms, which many times, and we're going to look at Psalm 55 if I ever get to my points here in a minute, we'll get to Psalm 55. But one of the things that you've got to see is this, how God can bring, and that's what you've got to trust Him. You've got to trust the Almighty, that He is for you, and that even if He brings difficulties and troubles and trials and puts you in a situation where you're, and you know what He'll do? What For some people it's finances, for other people it's health. For other people, it's their marriage. For other people, it's some, it's work. For other people, it's something else. But the, te- the New Testament text says, he knows how to get you right where you need it. And the Father knows how to get you, not because he's some mean old guy up there trying to ruin your life, but because he knows what's best for you that he might promote holiness in your life. So he brings discipline into your life. Now, in, in regards to all of that, we... We saw in the 17th chapter a rather dramatic moment. Absalom is now controlled in Jerusalem. Ahithophel, who has been asked for advice, the first piece of advice Ahithophel said was, sleep with all of your father's wives, or your father's concubines on the roof. And then, as that was pointed out to me this week, what an ironic thing. There, Absalom is sleeping with women on the very roof that David lusted after Bathsheba on. Stop and think about that one. Surely this is payback time. The writer wants you to see it. It's discipline time. But now something else is happening, is now they're in a high court, they're in the Oval Office and they're meeting, and Ahithophel says, now here's what you got to do. David's over here hiding at the fords of Gilgal. He says, go get him now. He's weak and he's weary. And all of the men are going, amen. All the cabinet members are going, amen, oh man. And it all seemed good. And then finally David, for some reason, or Absalom, for some reason, goes, well, maybe we should ask um, that, that guy, that archite guy, Hushai the archite, that friend of David's, let's ask him. He's here. And so they bring him into the meeting. And he says, oh, Ahithophel, his advice is normally very good, but this time he's wrong. And here's why. 
And instead of looking at David as weak and weary, he looks at David as, as a wild bear robbed of her cubs, as a fierce fighter, as a fierce mad fighter, as a fierce strong fighter. And he keeps emphasizing this point, and you can almost see the guys in the room starting to quiver under the presence of David's power. And he uses the illustrations of bear and lions. Why? Because David was famous for killing a bear and a lion in his lifetime. And so he's, he builds it, and, and also he says, Absalom, don't let Ahithophel get the glory and go get him tonight. You get all 288,000 enlisted soldiers that Second Chronicles said they had, and you all swarm upon David, and you lead the army, and you get the glory. And as we said this morning, there was Absalom combing his long black hair and thinking, yeah, I'll ride a white horse and I'll get the glory. And that was to his own demise. You'll see it's really more to his own, own demise than you will ever even realize. And so Ahithophel commits suicide, because he realizes David's now going to win. If you don't get David, David was such a warrior. If you don't get David when he's weak and weary right now, you're not going to get him, and he's going to come back and win. And when he comes back, I'm going to be guilty of treason, so I might as well hang myself. And so Ahithophel hangs himself, the second of four suicides in the Bible. Okay, now are we about caught up? I think we're about caught up. All right? Now, what are we supposed to learn? We'll just take this one really quickly. What are you to learn? That God is completely sovereign. 714 tells us this. The whole reason that you, you sit there and you wonder, if Ahithophel's counsel was like the counsel of God, then why in the world would Absalom ask Hushai the archite? And here's the why. Because look at 714 in your Bibles. That's the key verse. Read it. After you read it, look up here. Okay? The, the writer takes us aside and goes, look, here's why. God sovereignly rules. We gave the illustration this morning of Hitler. Hitler waited four to five weeks to attack Russia. If he hadn't done that, many people think Hitler might have won the war. His counselors were saying, go. God still is at work. We gave an illustration of a seventh grade football player. God is still at work. We gave illustrations of people coming to this church, how they heard it. God is still at work today. He's still sovereign, in control every moment. Don't ever put a bumper sticker on your car that says blank happens. Because it doesn't. God is in control. The Bible teaches that. If, if it's not true, then we're hopeless victims of deterministic chance with no God to whom we can trust. If this is not true, if God is not completely sovereign, that we can trust in all times, we ought to just close this church down tonight, forget that meeting tomorrow. There's no reason. If you can't trust in God at all times. And so many Christians are deists, looking back, thinking, well, God made the world and then he looks on it every now and then. No, history is his story. And troubles come. Deep sorrow come. There are only battles that seem to be lost. He's alive and in control and still at work. We're at the back of the tapestry looking. We don't understand it, but faith says there is another side to this that will all make sense one day. So we need to remember that. We looked at some scriptures, and just to build our faith, and since the Bible says give yourself to the public reading of scriptures, let's read this together. Here we go. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles, the people of Israel, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Listen, friends, I tell you, I don't know about you, this is so amazing. The death of Jesus Christ, if you would have asked, oh yeah, Pilate, Herod, they planned it, they conspired. There were all the Pharisees with all their meetings. 
that was all planned by God. In that tragedy, it was all under the sovereign care of the Almighty God. We need to consider this. Let's read these. Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? In Daniel 4.35, all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? And please notice, Psalm 2, we've already read that, but let's reread this one. I mean, that was we already read it in Acts, so let's read this one. By the way, wait, let's just read this. What does the Lord do when the, when the big uh, uh, guys talk about the nuclear powers and all their tanks and how, many, how much firepower they got in their F-16s and, and how strong they are? What does the Lord do? Look at this. Let's read this part where I point to. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. That's funny, isn't it? That's a good picture. Let's go here. Let's remember this one. Let's read it together. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. I tell you, I never knew it until I studied it this week. That is not a river like the King James says. It means as a farmer, like in Colorado where I was a youth pastor for three summers, they have these irrigation, irrigation dishes run through everyone's house. And they were bone dry. And I remember thinking, what is it? And they said, oh, you'll see one day. And all of a sudden they pulled the plugs or whatever you do, and they let the water come racing down to their crops. And they could control those waters exactly. They said, now this field needs water today. And boom, they could do it. The Bible says the king, the sovereign rulers of the world, their heart, their ability to make decisions, their will, their plans are in the hand of God. And just like a farmer completely controls which field gets the water and which field doesn't, so God controls their hearts. But I tell you, and, then, and then I don't know about you, but the conclusion, having them sing that song again about the greatness of God, wasn't that awesome? I'll tell you, I sat there, and I don't usually go for chill checks in worship services, but I had chill checks going up and down my back. Um, it, it was so wonderful to consider the greatness of Almighty God. Now, we also considered on this point, um, and I'm doing one of those long reviews again, but this is not just for kings and rulers. This is for every one of us. It's not just true, yeah, that may be true for David and maybe for Hitler and Saddam Hussein or something, maybe some president. But please remember that uh, he says, we're more valuable than the sparrows. He cares about us, and he's interested in our welfare. How that should make us happy. How that should make us trust him. Now, to the second point, he's also infinite in wisdom. He's completely sovereign, but he's also infinite in wisdom. That is, sovereign means this. He's in powerful control. He has the ability to control, but he's also infinite in wisdom. Now, again, let me recall that if we can't understand the kidney or can't begin to know the galaxies, or if we don't even know one slice of, of science, then listen, we got to understand what that tells us. God is so much more magnificent and so much more powerful and so much greater and so much smarter than we are. And that is why that if we would then look at some kind of difficulties or trials that we are in, and say that God is outside the control of that realm or somehow it's impossible for God to use this in my life, we really are making a statement about our weak faith and about our small view of God. You see, great heartaches He wisely forms to make you a greater blessing. We mentioned this again in the church, but He has Nathans to rebuke you, Absaloms to betray you, Ahithophels to break your heart, and Shimei's to curse at you. God in His sovereignty will allow those kinds of people into your life to purposely cause you trouble. He has trouble and trials and sorrows with your name on it marked out just for you. 
And this is the context of the discipline of the Lord upon the life of the believer. And it's, and it's, it's not me, it's not me, like, like, like I am as a father, where I look at my girls and I want them to behave a certain way and I'm frustrated and sometimes, I'll, I'll, like I mentioned last week, I'll say some bad thing and I'll, I'll say things like, you goofball or, or something, what are you doing? And I'll, I'll be short-tempered with them. Our Heavenly Father, in His wisdom, in His infinite wisdom, and, and by the way, most parents look at the lives of their kids and they think like this, Oh, that my kid would be spared from sorrow. Oh, that they wouldn't have a terrible marriage. Oh, that they would only have good times. They would just be healthy and have a better life than I had. And that's the goal that we would all have. And that's somewhat worthy. But I got news for all of you. You know, if you really want Christ to be in control of the heart of your child, what is Christ going to have to do? The Father in His sovereignty is going to break your child's heart at some point. And are you going to get in the way in comfort where you should not comfort? And there's a time where we've got to realize if we're really going to give our children to God and our, ourselves to God, there is a God's going to break our hearts. Look what Peter says concerning this. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of troubles. I want you to notice this. You're rejoicing, though now for a little while, a little while, trials come and go. You may, even if it's like a Johnny Erickson taught us, she'll tell you it's still a little while. Because that's only this life versus eternity. And Paul says the sufferings of this world are not, com- are not worthy to be compared with the sufferings of the next. And so even if you suffer grief for a little while and all kinds of troubles, these have come. Have you notice this? Look at this. Read these three words with me. These. Ha- oh, that was weak. Let's read this. Come on. These have come. What have come? Trials, fiery trials that you've had to suffer grief in. These have come. A purpose statement. There's a sovereign God who in wisdom knows when to bring trouble into your life. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. You know what God does? God has a way of seeing if our faith is genuine. Think think of the parable of the guy that goes forth to sow the seed. Only one in the four seeds is really the true fruit. Because there's going to be a lot of people that are going to have instantaneous responses to Christ. Or people that walk for Christ for a short period in their life. But those in which the true fruit of the, of the Spirit of God has been born, and there is a new heart, and they really become God's children, are those people that desire to go on. And, and notice this, the suffering grief, have, they've come for a purpose. For why? Because your faith, which is more important than gold. God's developing your faith. I think it's amazing how David's faith starts to, you start to see in chapter 11, David is so far from God and you're sitting there going, oh, David, don't do it. No, David, don't do it. And then he does it. He commits all the terrible sin. But you start to see when they get to the 15th chapter of David's faith starting to come back. Like, for instance, in, in let me just read you a couple. In 1520, it says, he says to the, the Gittite, Ittai the Gittite in 1520, you can look there with me if you want. He says with great compassion, you came only yesterday, and today shall I make you wander about with us when I did not know where I am going? Go back to your countrymen. May kindness and faithfulness be with you. There he's speaking as a, a loving man, a kind man. And then look at 25 and 26. Look at this great statement of faith. As David is leaving his hometown, his son and Ahithophel are coming after him. And he says, take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. Here's a man about 62 years old that has walked with the Lord since boyhood. 
And here he is in the, in the severe, severe trial of his life. His son's coming to get him. He's having to leave with his family. He's responsible for all these little kids as they're running out into the mountains. And you know what he says? He goes, well, if, if I find favor with God, good. And if not, he'll take me. I'm in God's hands. You see a heart trusting. A heart that realizes that his faith is being developed and it's being proved genuine. Think about that, by the way. That even David, even David needed to have his faith proved. Think about that. God is out there to test us to see where we really are. I'd like to just illustrate this again in the life of Joseph, everyone. Please, and just let it, let, let, let the, the scriptures are to be read and reread and reread and reread. So I guess it wouldn't be bad if preaching, you kept hearing some of the same things again and again. Stop with me and think through the story of Joseph. Now, everyone think through with me. Stay with me here a second. Joseph is hated by his brothers and he's sold. He's lied about and sold. He's bought by Potiphar's um, wife, or Potiphar, I don't know who bought him, probably Potiphar's wife did buy him, but uh, he's bought by Potiphar down in Egypt. And then one day Potiphar, and, and, and God blesses him, and now he's, and he's still a heartache. Imagine you're a slave in a foreign country, and you're sitting there thinking, how many years is this going to go on? When am I going to go back to my hometown? When am I going to see our relatives? And then all of a sudden Potiphar's wife starts putting the move on him. And he, being committed to God, says no. And as a result, what could be worse than a slave in Egypt? How about a prisoner in Egypt? And he becomes a prisoner in Egypt. And there in prison, he interprets the baker and the butler's dream, and they forget about him. And more years go by. And if we would stop and look at that, that is certainly the, if you look at it from Joseph's perspective, if you really crawled into the scriptures and got in there right next to Joseph, and you looked at life from his perspective, you would sit there and you'd go, God doesn't love me. But was that the case? Did God still love Joseph? What is more important? Is it more important to be Absalom with good looks and long hair and Ahithophel at your side? Is it more important to be David's brother in the land of Canaan? Or is it more important to be David in the wilderness with God or Joseph in prison and it says the Lord was with him? We've got to stop and ask ourselves these kinds of questions. Was all of what happened to Joseph by chance? Is all of these things happening to David by chance? The Old Testament stories are to inspire your faith so that you could persevere and go on living for God. And my friend, he's got you in a trial. Don't take the easy route out. Don't turn and run. Don't fly, don't fly away. Don't to take off and say, I'm not going to be developed. God doesn't want some brats running around. He wants maturity in your life. And so he's going to bring these things into your life for a sovereign reason and for a purpose. He's absolutely perfect in his sovereignty. He's absolutely perfect in his wisdom. Nothing, do you hear me? No heartache, no trouble, no sorrow, no broken relationship, no bad boss at work. Nobody can bother you apart from God allowing it. He's in your sight. He is sovereign and he's sovereign in, in wisdom. And he's infinite in wisdom and he's, he's wise in that. And we can trust him. We can also say... This about God. He is perfect in love. And we said we were going to talk about that tonight. But I, I just want you to see something about this, which is very important. We've, we've gone over these before, but I want to just give them to you quickly. Ten biblical reasons why God allows problems into your life. Again, showing this. He's sovereign, he's wise, and he's loving. And we're just going to go so quickly because I want to get to something else. But sometimes the believers will be afflicted with problems as a means of loving chastisement. Certainly we covered that last week and talked about it in this passage. Sometimes God will bring trouble and suffering as preventative medicine 
to keep believers from falling into particular temptation. Now, all we're stating here is this. We're looking at the backside of the tapestry. We're looking at, the, we're looking at all of this mess of cords, and we're trying to come up with biblical solutions to help us. So in other words, it's going to be chastisement in your life, as David is being chastised. It's going to be preventative medicine. Paul said, because of the abundant revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. God was working with them. God doesn't give up on his people. Look at this. On some occasions, the purpose of problems is to demonstrate to Satan that there are those who serve God because they love him, not because it pays to do so. Remember Job? Satan comes before, oh, does, Satan, does Job serve you for any reason? No. Satan can't believe this one. And there may be, in other words, in the heavenlies, there may be some things going on that we don't understand. Look at number four. Suffering is often like a shot of adrenaline in promoting sanctification and spiritual growth. Look at number five. Trouble will educate you in regard to Christian virtues such as endurance and perseverance. And quickly, problems will teach you more of the sovereignty of God so that you understand the Lord better. Job said, before I heard of you, now I see you. Job went through all of that. Stop and think. There's another character we could talk about for a while. Job, 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 think of that. Why did that happen? It's to help your faith persevere. Trouble gives you an opportunity to imitate Christ, to be like Christ. He was in an awful lot of trouble, wasn't he? Suffering prepares you for future ministry to others. You know some of the greatest heartaches in my life? I've realized now, after just 16 years, I've already seen this come to fruition. There are times when I'm sitting in my office and I'm dealing with a certain situation, and I am completely at home. Because I can say, been there, done that. I know what you're feeling. If you would ask me, Kim, do you want to go through that again or something like it? No. But problems come so that you will not trust in yourself but in God. This is actually chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. There, there it says that these have come so that we may learn. The Apostle Paul, was he so much beyond us that he didn't need to have troubles? No. God brought troubles into the Apostle Paul's life because he loved him so much so that Paul would not trust in himself but would trust in God. Now, having said that, that God is sovereign in wisdom. God is, excuse me, all-powerful, all-sovereign. He's infinite wisdom, and he certainly loves us. You see how the three are strands that's a cord that cannot be broken? If he's sovereign, but he's not all-loving, then that can get bad. If he's sovereign, but he's not wise, but he's loving, then he may not do what's best. But because he is sovereign, because he is full of wisdom, and because he is full of love towards us, you put that three, the three-corded rope together, and it's a strand that can't be broken. And what is it? Is that this? God is committed to his people. He loves you. He is desiring what's best for you. And what gets me is we're so weak in the word anymore that a little bitty trial comes our way. God doesn't love me. That's the way we act. And I would say this. Who's the most guilty in this room? But you've got to understand this, friends. There is no wicked boss at your workplace that is outside the sovereign control of God. There is nobody that, that in your family, that one relative that always bugs you, is not outside the sovereign realm of an almighty God. There is nothing that can come your way. Now that's what we learn about God. What do we need to learn about faith? This ought to encourage us. God hears your prayers. In 1531, David is leaving Jerusalem, going up the Mount of Olives, and, in, and he gets the news that Ahithophel has betrayed him. He goes, oh, and he prays, oh God, frustrate Ahithophel. Now, several days, possibly a few weeks go by, when you get to 714, David 
His prayer is answered. His prayer is exactly answered. Now, do you want to know possibly what he prayed those nights, Psalm 3, Psalm 4? But I want you to see it in Psalm 55, but not yet. Not yet, all right? First off, I want to remind you of something. You need your faith strong to realize this, that God does hear your prayers. Listen to what David says. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call to him as long as I live. God, God turns his ear down to the weak person who can barely utter their prayers. And like the kind doctor or the, or the, the, the sickly um, spouse that has been with the, the, the dying person for years, they get down to listen to their last words and, and they love them so much and they're down listening. God is not some far off God where you gotta go, hey, come here, would you? Where are you? He's a God that's quick to hear our prayers and loves his people. And David says, I love the Lord because he hears my cry for mercy. And look at Psalm 55. He wrote this right during this time. Look what he says to us. He's, David, though dead, still speaks tonight to us. Look at this. Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. But you, O oh God, will bring down the wicked into the pit of corruption, bloodthirsty and deceitful men, like Ahithophel and Absalom. Believe me, that's who he's talking about will not live out half their days. But as for me, I will trust in you. Let me tell you several things about this verse that you ought to consider. Number one, I want you to notice this. Cast your cares on the Lord. Turn to Psalm 55. I want to show you what that is. Go over to Psalm 55. Come on, work hard with me here tonight. Psalm 55. I'm working hard. I don't want you to just lazy your way through this one, all right? In Psalm 55, I want you to see something. This has been a verse that I've memorized for years. Psalm 55 has been a verse I've memorized for years. Cast your cares on the Lord, he will sustain you, he will never let the righteous fall. How many have memorized that verse? Okay, one or two or three or four, ten, twenty, thirty. Okay, good. Now look, I think this, you've got to realize the situation, David. He's near the fords in Gilgal. His son has betrayed him. Ahithophel is against him. His own armies are now against him. Two hundred of his cabinet members are against him. They're all coming after him. There's a possibility of some 280,000 soldiers charging down the hills after him. His own men that he trained and that he led. Put yourself in this position. Stop and think of how difficult it would be. And then realize that David's out there. And my friend, let me tell you something. This is Christian living. I don't get it. People have to run around and go talk to everybody else. Stop it. Would you stop doing that? Hey, a newcomer's class, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm, there's, a, there's a point I'm trying to make, so I'm being sarcastic. But I hear it all the time. Do you have accountability? Do you have small groups? Do you have this? Do you have that? And I'm all for those things. Yes, we do have them, and I'm all for them. Well, my friends, if they're ever first place in your life, that's not the first place. The Lord must be first. And first and foremost is this. we got to cast our cares on the Lord. I've often said to people, I've mentioned to you before, when they've got done pouring out their heart, and here they're pouring out this tragic story, it's just like going, blah, 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 but it's just all over the desk. And there it is. And I've often said to them, have you told the Lord what you've just told me? Please understand. Yes, we need accountability. Yes, we need those groups. Yes, we need to encourage one another. We've gone through this so many times, but can I tell you, there is something that has made me grow in the Lord. And what it is, is when my heart is heavy and I'm full of difficulties or there's been criticism or there's been some kind of tr tough thing that I've been going through, I just go up by myself and cast my cares on the Lord. Look at this promise from God's Word. If you say you can't make it in life, then either this is true or you're right. 
It says here, if you cast your cares on the Lord, He will sustain you. Thank you, Jeff. And there's Jeff that knows about it. He's been through it. Sitting in a wheelchair there saying amen to this point. It's absolutely true, my friends. We can make it. Casting our cares on the Lord, He'll sustain you. He won't let the righteous fall. Something I love about this point. David writes this, having been an adulterer and a murderer, and yet look at him. Is he still righteous? Oh, what the, there's a volume. There's books to be written on that. Stop and think. David was so guilty, but this is what it means as a Christian when you have confessed your sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all what? Unrighteousness. So though he was guilty as an adulterer and a murderer, and though all these wicked men were saying things about him, he could still say, you'll never let the righteous fall. That's me, because my heart's clean. Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. And so, friends, what a hope there is. What encouragement there is. It seems to me, if I remember Romans 15.4, this is to give you hope and encouragement. What hope and encouragement there is to consider this passage of Scripture and say, you mean even if I've blown it, God won't give up on me? Buddy, you better believe he won't give up on you. You mean if I really take all of my burdens and cast them on the Lord and actually do it, that that promise is true? Yes. But the wicked who have no time for God will fall. So our God is a God that hears our prayers. By the way, do you want to know what it means to cast your burden on the Lord? Don't you have you in Psalm 55? Look here. Here's what it means. Look at verse 1. Listen to my prayer, O God. Are you with me in verse 1 of Psalm 55? Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my plea. Hear me and answer me. My thoughts trouble me and I'm distraught at the voice of the enemy at the stairs of the wicked. They bring down suffering. Can't you just hear that? Look at verse 4. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death assail me. You know what that is? That's called casting your cares on the Lord. In other words, part of this is to, here's what it means to pray. We talk all these books about seven steps to pray and all this. Here's what it really means to pray, my friends. A believer in prayer, this is the end of the same psalm. It means to cast your cares. It means to describe what is going on in your heart to God. To lay it out before Him. To tell Him every single thing. To tell Him, you can tell things to God. I have said things to God I, I, I have never said to another human nor would think of ever saying to another human. He's big enough. He's fatherly enough. He's sovereign. He's powerful. He's wise. He's loving enough to take it, my friends. And you can go to him and you can just tell him, look what he says, listen to me. My, look, just think of David that night over by the Fords of Gilgal where I showed you on the map, out there with his men knowing that there's a possibility that 288,000 soldiers are coming after him, including his own son. And stop and think of what this must have been like for him. And he sits there and he says, my thoughts trouble me, I'm distraught at the voice of the enemy, which is my own son. The stairs of the wicked, they bring me down upon me. They revile me. Look at verse 4. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death assail me. Fear and trembling have beset me. Horror has overwhelmed me. I said, oh God, I've said this. I would like to get out of here a lot farther than the Fords. I'd like to, they're going to ask me in a few minutes to cross the Jordan. I'd like to get a lot farther than that. Oh, that I had the wings of the dove. I could fly away and be at rest. Now look at, That's what it means to cast your cares upon the Lord. 
to, to, to pour out your heart is another word. And it would actually mean if I took this water I've shown you in the past and just dumped it out and just started pouring the water out. It means to take what is in your heart and dump it out before God. I'm scared. I'm weak. I'm troubled. You see, we have lived so much of our Christian life not doing that. I heard those statistics where, listen to this, 60% of marriages now end in divorce. It's something like in the church, evangelical church, 58% of marriages end in divorce. Isn't that great? I mean, isn't the power of Christ wonderful there? But you know what it says this? It's, it's something like this. Couples that pray together, one in 500 end in divorce. There is something that is so significant to the life of faith of casting your cares on the Lord, to taking out your burdens and, and pouring them out. Look what else he does. Look what else it means. Verse 9. Confuse the wicked, O Lord. Confound their speech. Look what he, now, now he goes on in verses 9, 10, and 11. He goes on and he asks God to do something against the enemy. Do this against the enemy. And then in verse 11, notice he says in verse 11, excuse me, verses 12, 13, and 14, he, he, he again describes how bad he feels. Isn't it interesting that part of prayer, as we see in the Old Testament, is describing to God how bad you feel? Look, look, look at verse 12. If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. Who's he talking about? Ahithophel. This is a verse written about Ahithophel who had betrayed him. If a foe were raising himself against me, I could hide from him. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship. We used to go to church together. There he is describing to God the burdens of his heart. On and on, and you'll have to do some more work on that yourself, but on and on in this psalm you see what it means to cast your cares upon the Lord, to expect and believe that God hears your prayer even when in trouble. Can I tell you, my friends, I don't know how else to say it, but I have just seen it. This is the dividing line. Right here is the dividing line between people that make it and don't make it in the Christian life. I have sat down with so many people and I have pleaded with them to live for God. I said, you can do it. God's promises are true. If you don't, you've got a life of godlessness ahead of you. If you do, you'll have the blessings of goodness and mercy to follow you all the days of your life. And you know what it is? It's going out and actually doing this in faith. Where you, in faith, you say, yes, God, here's my burdens, here's my concerns. I'm so weak. If you only knew, and I say this to encourage you, if you only knew how desperately weak this man is. If you only knew how, I'd cry out to God, please strengthen me. My heart is so bad. These, or, or I'll get a letter or something will happen around the church or and my heart is broken. I, I, I have to make some kind, I have to do something about it, but it's so difficult, it's so hard. People think, oh, things are happening at our great church, what are you guys doing? I tell them this, it's a ministry of weakness. And that's the truth. It's a ministry of weakness, but can I tell you, that seems to be God's plan to keep you weak, to keep you humble so you'll be trusted in Him. So please remember, friends, God hears your prayers. We'll just do one more and I'll end. i got some more. i got about four more points here, but we'll just do one more because this is really great. This ought to encourage you. Our God is so wise, He's so sovereign, He's so loving, that get this, God is working for you when you cannot see it. Remember 714? Where was David? At the Fords of Gilgal. What's going on in the high courtroom? All kind. God's, God's at work. He's frustrating to hit the fellow's advice. God is working for you when you cannot see it. 
David has no way of knowing what's going on in the cabinet of Israel's Supreme Court, but boy, God's there, and he knows, and he's turning those hearts of the men so that he's going to frustrate Absalom to bring him to destruction because he says, Absalom, you'll be used as a tool to discipline David, but you've gone too far. And that you've gone far enough. And so you've got to understand, my friends, that God is so much for you. Look what it says in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Let's read this together. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. I'll just give them, without comment, I'll just give you the last two points. Trust God at all times, even bad times. And then be willing to learn. Be willing to understand that there's something for us to learn about God and His ways at all times. Good. All right, let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, how we desire to learn what it means to cast our cares upon You how much we hunger and thirst to know of a real vital living relationship instead of wasting away hours of our life fretting, instead of, of, of not really knowing you, I pray you would stir up and raise up, including me, men and women that would know what it means to cast their cares and their burdens upon you. And we would do so tonight in a, in a couple of things. One, Father, here's one, just trying to example exactly what we've just learned tonight. We don't, we don't think that there's anybody after us in the Carmel area as far as in the ordinance committees or anything like that. We don't think there's anybody purposely trying to be an enemy to us. But Father, we would make this prayer. If that ordinance doesn't go through and we don't get the new building, we are talking about some major changes that we're going to have to do here. And there are so many people wanting to come. And there seems to be such a need of the teaching of the Scriptures publicly like this that we would beseech you and cast our burden on you that you would help us and find favor for us so that that ordinance would go through and we could get this building up as quick as possible. And then we'd ask you to bless the workers in an abundant way so it could go up faster than normal. Of course, this is our way of solving this problem. You're also, we, we would trust you if it didn't go this way. Because we know that we're looking at the backside of the, of the mat. And so, Father, help us. But then, Father, would you also, there are marriages in this church, several right now, that they're, they're, the, the partners are, are not getting along and there's bitterness and there's hurt and, and there's been bad habits developed. I would pray you would learn, teach couples to pray together. I pray you would teach couples to love each other as Christ loved. The husband demonstrating that and in leading in the love. The woman demonstrating that by submitting in the love. And Father, we, we just would pray that you would help us. This, this, it's, we, we come to a text like this and it so grabbed my heart to see how great, how mighty, and how powerful you are. And we are thankful that we serve a God like you. What a privilege it is to declare you. I, I just, I personally thank you as the pastor of this church that it's me that gets to stand up and, and in such a weak way deliver the message. And we would desire, Lord, your hand of blessing so that people would come to know Jesus. Disciples would continually be made here. And that you might greatly um, bless this church with the ability to have people become friends and, to, and good accountability and all the things that a church should be. You would help make us that. But also help us to declare the word with power. To, to preach messages, Father, we are so far behind what we preach. And we just need your mercy to cover us. And we are thankful for the promise that your goodness and your mercy will follow us all the days of our life. And we rejoice in that. 
And so we would ask you to keep working with us and to help us. In Jesus' name, amen. That concludes today's message from the Expository Word. Please join us again for more classic messages from Kimber Kaufman. Take care.